Ready? Almost. I'll give it just a second. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for your church. Um, thank you for giving your church the words to use to praise you. Um, because with, without you giving us those words, we would, ha- we would have nothing. Without you revealing yourself to us, we would know nothing. Without, without you seeking us out, we would be nothing. And I just want to thank you for, specifically this morning, for giving us such perfect words to praise you, to describe you, words that tie right in with where we're going in your word today. And I just pray that we as your church, seeing again how you are revealing yourself to us, uh, would respond appropriately. We would respond in the way that you desire for us to respond. That we would, we would worship you with the words and the actions that, that you desire. God, I pray that you would, you would, you would do unimaginable things through this small group of believers that we call Christ Reconciled Church. And I just pray that you would bless our time this morning and thus bring glory to yourself through our time here. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to eventually get to Hebrews 7, I promise. We're going to go a a couple of different places on our way there. Um, If you want to start turning to Genesis 14... Uh, you can start turning there as well. Um, so, most of you have already heard the whole saga of what has gone on in the Clements family in the last week and a half. Uh, some of you may have heard more details than others. Some of you may not know anything. So, so that we're all on the same page, and I'll explain why I think it's important that we all are on the same page as to what's been going on. I'm going to kind of give you a bit of the story. So, my cousin Kylie moved up here in what? 2007. Yes, it was um, right as you were getting married. You're right. That's the same year I got married. That was a that was a really big year. Uh, so she moved up here. Uh, she lived with my parents for a while. She graduated high school at Science Hill. She went to ETSU. A couple of different times trying to make that stick. That was never the thing that was going to stick. Um, she ended up renting a place, working, living right down here. Um, so that's kind of how she ended up here with us. Uh, she moved up here from Tuscaloosa. Um, she ended up in the last little bit um, with a guy living in her house with her who, by all evidence presented, knows nothing of Jesus. I think everyone that has encountered him would say, no, this guy does not know Jesus. Jesus does not not manifest himself that way in your life. Um, Not a good situation, kind of living off of her stuff, even though she didn't really have much stuff, and not being generally helpful. Come to find out a couple weeks ago that she was pregnant, and that she was going to be due next month. So, 
we found out very late. They didn't want to keep the baby, so they were, my mom was helping them look for various adoption options and different people who might be interested in helping um, raise the baby, all of that. Come to find out that when Kylie spoke with her father in Alabama, he said, we would love to do anything that we can to help you out. We will help you up to the point that they said we would be willing to adopt your baby for you, or if you want to move back down here with us, we will help you do that, which was an option that she was seriously considering because she knew that she couldn't do anything to take care of her own baby in the situation that she's in right now. But if, if there was a way that she could keep it, she was hoping that she could get to keep and raise her own baby, which I think is awesome, which I think it's, it's really cool to see how God puts that in, in, in people, just this natural inclination that I want to raise my own child. Um, and so she started leaning this direction turns out the guy that had been living with her the father of the child was going to make the exit a very difficult thing he did not want her to leave to the point that he changed his tune completely from where he was in the I don't want to raise the child to you're trying to steal my child from me uh, which which um, judging by the way the whole thing went down, was not really the case. He was just trying to take advantage of her, get as much out of her as he could. Um, trying to take her for as much money or stuff or whatever as he could. Um, so come, this gets us up to last Sunday night. Um, she's thinking she wants to leave. He's thinking he does not want her to leave. And he's saying so in very interesting ways. And sometimes very aggressive sounding ways um, to her and to texts to my mom who's trying to go back and forth with her and try to say, what are you going to do? Uh, she decides she wants to go. Mom says, why don't you come over to our house? When she comes over to the house, she says, I don't really want you to go back over there. I think it's time that you got away. He's not here. Why don't you go stay at Tanner Tiff's house, at my house, for the night? Because he has no idea who they are. Still doesn't. Which is a good thing. Still doesn't know I even exist. So why don't, why don't you go stay the night with them and then tomorrow I'm putting in your car and you're going, you're going to Alabama. You're driving home. First thing. Uh, it was a little more involved than just get up and go first thing. I mean, she ended up having lots of loose ends to tie off here. She had liens on her car. She had to pay off. She had... All sorts of things. I don't remember all the details. But at some cost, she was, she was taken out of this abusive, dangerous place and freed to go back home. Back to her family who have welcomed her back and are super excited about helping her raise a baby. Which is an awesome story. I tell you all this because... He is really upset with my mom and has said so on Facebook and has said he was going to come here this morning to make sure we all know that she's a baby stealer. So if a guy comes up and says that she's a baby stealer, that's the one. You'll know him when he says that. You'll know him probably before that. Um, so... 
I was thinking about this because I'm thinking about where we're going in our text this morning. And I was thinking about that natural inclination when we, the church, see somebody in some sort of a captive situation, in some sort of a dangerous this this urge that we get to, we want to get them out of that. Right? You it may not be that you you have had a friend who was pregnant who was living with some abusive guy that you needed to help get her out of that situation. It may not be that exact situation, but maybe it's been you see somebody that you know is trapped in sin and and, and you want to get them out of that situation. They are putting themselves in a place where all they can do is something wicked and you want to help get them out of that situation. That situation does not want to let them go. Um, I think back to when we went some of us went to Passion in 2012 and they had this big push to we want to fight slavery in the world. We have this desire to get people out of situations where they are being held captive against their will. And the church should rally around this idea of setting people free. And I was wondering why is that such a natural inclination for us? And I think it's because our whole lives we're in bondage to sin. We are slaves to sin, and the whole purpose of what we believe, the whole purpose of the story of this book is to talk about the guy who came to set us free. The whole point is, is releasing us from, we see the word chains, we see the word bonds, we see all of these different examples of us being tied down by our own sin. And when we're tied down, we can do nothing to get ourselves out, and this whole story of the Bible the more we read it, the more we see the big picture, it's all about Jesus. And it's all about Jesus getting us out of our situation that we got ourselves into. Right? It's all about Jesus freeing us from some sort of slavery. And so I think that's why that inclination is so naturally within us. This desire to get people out of these horrible situations. And I think that that was definitely on Abraham's heart in the story that we're going to read here in Genesis chapter 14. Um, so if you'll go ahead, if you probably are already there, I'm going to have to turn there real quick. So Genesis chapter 14, and I'm just going to read, what verse, where we start? We're going to start in 11. I'm going to read the 11 through 16 here real quick, just to kind of set the scene for the main point that we're going to get to in just a second. Um, Genesis 14 verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Anner. These were, the, these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. First of all, how awesome is that? That he's like, they got him? All right, let's go. Let's go. Load up, boys. And then, like, at night, they're, like, doing this kind of, like, ninja sneak attack. And, man, 
That's an awesome, that's an awesome thought though, right? So, so my nephew is captured. I'm going to just get together my 318 strongest dudes and we're going to go get him out. That's really cool. And I think it, it obviously reflects his heart as to what he's wanting to do because it keeps saying his nephew, his kinsman. I'm going to go free my brother here. I'm going to go get him out and bring him back. That same kind of idea that I was talking about before. The same, I have to go get him out of this situation because he is helpless unless some outside force acts upon him. And I think it's interesting here in verse 16 that it doesn't just say he brought back Lot. It says he brought back Lot with all of his stuff and he saved the women and the people as well. He's everybody else. The Bible doesn't overlook anybody. He didn't just go for his person and just let him leave the rest. He went back for everyone And if you just um, read just that part of the story, you're like, yeah, that's a cool story. What's the point? Why tell us about this? Because this is, what, a couple of days? They came, they took him, and was like, no. He goes and frees him, brings him back. That's the end. No, we pick it up here, verse 17. We're going to go through verse 20. After his return from the defeat, oh, man, of Cheddar Laomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So we get Abram going out, rescuing his nephew, coming back. He gets blessed by this king named Melchizedek. And then he gives him a tithe. He gives him a tenth of everything that he has. And if you just read that story in isolation, even if you were just reading through the Old Testament, you just read that story, you would have thought, okay, why? Like, what's the point? Why do we get this story? What is the point of the story? There really is no significance other than he rescued him. This guy came back and blessed him. He gave him a tenth of the spoils from his battle. And that's, that's probably the way it seems like it should be read when you read it just in this context. That's probably the way the Jews read it, right? Even up until the time Jesus came. And then there was that story of Melchizedek. We don't really get it. We don't really understand what's going on. But that's the cool thing about Hebrews is because the whole time we've been in Hebrews, he keeps referencing back to all these Old Testament passages that probably didn't have all the clarification that we needed to fully understand what the author's intent was when he was writing it down. And he really breaks down the significance of it and gives us a big picture of Scripture at the same time because we keep seeing that all of these details in the whole book, every single thing has a purpose. There's no just insignificant point where you're like and then there was that story but it really doesn't matter. Every little detail matters when we're in here. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Hebrews 7 you're probably already there. Um, this is kind of the big argument that I think the author has been building toward for a long time. He keeps making mention of this guy Melchizedek. He keeps saying you will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek and we're like 
Who's Melchizedek? It's time for him to explain. No more spoilers. We're really going to start talking about Melchizedek this week. And we're going to kind of see the significance of him for the next four weeks. Um, A lot of this text that we're going to be in today is more descriptive. Um, Not a lot of application, really, in here. I think we're going to get to some. But one of the things that you're going to find is that for the rest of chapter 7 and then all through chapter 8, he's going to take this description of Melchizedek that he's going to give us today, and he's going to say, and here are the implications. Here's the weighty part of what all this means for us. So uh, we'll go ahead and read here in Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to go verses 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. So that's what we just read. Then it says, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is, from their brothers. Though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Everybody got it now? Good? We can pray? We can go home. So, obviously this thought is what he's been building up to for a long time. He had this lengthy discussion on Jesus is our high priest. And he's alluded, he's alluded a couple times to the fact that Jesus is our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And now he's starting to get into the explanation of what that means. And he's going to start by just explaining the significance of who Melchizedek is. And that's what we're talking about today. We're not talking about the implications of his priesthood as much. That's going to be next week. But today we're going to talk about the significance of who this guy Melchizedek was. So what does it say we know about Melchizedek? Well, the first thing it says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham. So this guy Melchizedek is labeled both as a king and as a priest. Does that stand out as peculiar to anybody? Can you think of anybody? Oh, I'm not going to ask that question because that will get to the end of the sermon. I'm not going to ask that question. Throughout scripture, the office of king and the office of priest have been kept apart. We don't overlap these things. We have a really clear example in 1 Samuel chapter 13. You can write it down and read it. You can turn to it now and kind of skim through it. I'm going to give you a summary. In in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. uh, So you have Saul the king is getting ready to go to battle. And and Samuel the prophet has told him, Okay, 
I'm going to come and I'm going to offer a sacrifice before you, you go do your thing. Wait for me there. I'm coming. I'm going to offer the sacrifice for you. And so Saul's sitting there waiting. And Saul, not necessarily known for being super patient, um, starts getting antsy. It gets to the time where Samuel said he was going to be there. He's not there yet. He's ready to go because his enemies are starting to spread out, disperse. And he knows now's the time for us to do this thing. So I have to offer the sacrifice. He's not going to be here in time. I'm going to offer the sacrifice. So he goes ahead, offers the sacrifice as the king. He kind of takes on the role of priest and offers the sacrifice in place of Samuel. Which, of course, immediately afterwards, Samuel shows up because that's how it works, right? You know, you, you think, I'll go ahead and do this thing myself before somebody else gets here. <clears throat> and then they get here and catch you on the end, at the tail end of it. <clears throat> so, so he offers the sacrifice and Samuel immediately shows up and says, Saul, what have you done? I told you to wait. This is not your role. You are the king. You're not the one who's supposed to be offering these sacrifices. And because of your impatience... God has rejected you as king. You could have, you could have sat on, your, on this throne and your family could have reigned forever. But your impatience, your desire to go ahead and take on a role that was not intended for you, God has rejected you. Uh, we even see later, David, his, um, his successor, the next king, wants to build a temple for God. He's thinking, I'm living in this palace and God's sitting over here living in a tent. I want to build him a glorious temple, and God says, no, you are a warrior. You have too much blood on your hands. That is not going to be for you. He's trying to, to keep these, the, the priestly roles and the, and the kingly roles separate. We don't want them to overlap. Other than Melchizedek and Jesus, we don't see the Bible putting these two roles together. Priest and king. This is it. So when it says he is a king and it says that he is a priest, this is significant. It's saying this is a person, and he calls him, like the Son of God. Because he is both ruling over a city and he is both serving as a priest. So I don't want us to miss that. Melchizedek fulfills both of these roles. And it says he has no genealogy. Okay, so we have, we have two options for kind of how to understand this idea of him being this eternal being. Um, there are two, there, there, and it really kind of centers around whether or not you think one thing is true. Um, there's this thing called a Christophany. Who wants to give me a definition of a Christophany? Yes. An appearance of Christ not during the incarnation. Right. Uh, so we have these different places in the Old Testament where we are hoping, well, we're, or some people are assuming, this is just Jesus appearing. Um, when Joshua meets the commander of the army of the Lord right before he's told to go march around Jericho. Some people wonder if that was Jesus. Um, Jacob wrestles with this guy throughout the middle of the night before he breaks his leg. Some people wonder if that's Jesus. Um, I had a couple more of these written down here. Let me see here. Uh, the fiery furnace. Uh, the fourth person that appears in the fiery furnace. Uh, some people wonder if that's Jesus. Uh, and then you have this guy Melchizedek who it says has no beginning of days and has no death. Like no genealogy. He just is this standalone character. Maybe he was this one time appearance of Jesus 
to fulfill this role. Um, and there are a lot of people that think this is a logical way to interpret this. This is, this is Abraham giving a tithe to Jesus, saying that Jesus is always going to be superior. And while that's true, Jesus is superior, Jesus is better, I don't think... I, it, it has such specific stuff here. He's king of Salem, um, which is probably Jerusalem, if you think about that. Um, Salem meaning peace, Jerusalem being the city of peace. Um, so I think that he was actually a real person, and it's just that we don't have any record before and after so that he can, like it says, be like the Son of God. It doesn't say he was the Son of God. It says he was like the Son of God, uh, representing, um, what's a good word, uh, prefiguring Jesus, um, just kind of giving us an example of what it's going to be like. He's compared to Christ. Christ is eternal. Um, and, and by, and it doesn't say that he's eternal, so kind of by absence it's saying he is like someone who's eternal because we don't know where he came from, we don't know where he went. So we just kind of assume that, that his, his type, we don't see a handoff of his, his kingship, we don't see a handoff of his priesthood to someone else. So we're left to assume that it continues on forever after that. And we know that of Jesus, too, that he has always been and will always be. I mean, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. So even before creation, Jesus was. Right? Jesus existed for eternity past. He was not a created being. So like this guy, this guy is giving us a, an example of what it is like to be Jesus. Um, because we don't know of Jesus' beginning and we don't know of Jesus' end because there won't be one. And this is kind of, and, and the reason I kind of lean towards this idea of him prefiguring Christ instead of actually being Christ is because we see these examples of people who are, in a sense, like Jesus before Jesus. And, and, and actually Hebrews is doing a good job of kind of lining these people up saying, this is how they were like Jesus, but they weren't. Right? We keep getting this line of people. Uh, we've, seen, we've seen David, who was a king, like Jesus would be. His throne would reign forever. Um, Elijah, who was a prophet, like Jesus. Moses, who was over the people, like Jesus, who led the people, like Jesus. And now we see this guy, Melchizedek, who is like Jesus. We keep seeing these examples, building up point, and, and the whole point of what Hebrews is saying is, you're getting distracted by these people. You're looking back to these people and you're thinking they were it. When all they were were just kind of the examples of what Jesus was going to be. Jesus was going to step in and he was going to take what they did and go so much further with it. Do so much more. Be so much better at that. Be so much more perfect at that. And so here's this guy that the Jews even were probably thinking was fairly insignificant. He's just a guy. They showed up for, what, four or five verses somewhere in one of our history books. And he blessed Abraham, and Abraham gave him a tithe. And they think that's probably it, because, because we've been given a whole lot more specific rules and regulations and lifestyles since then. And obviously that's the thing that we're supposed to hold on to. And what he's trying to say, and this is kind of the, the third thing that he tells us about Melchizedek here, is that Melchizedek 
was superior to Abraham. Right? He was a higher authority than was Abraham. And the point that he's going to begin to build starting next week is that the priesthood of Melchizedek was higher than the priesthood that followed Abraham. And he starts to, he starts to lay out the groundwork for that here in these verses. Because the point that he's making is that when Abraham was faced with this guy, who he saw as superior to him, he paid him a tithe. The same way that the people pay tithes to the Levitical priests, right? So the people are paying tithes to the Levitical priests, and he's saying, by virtue of Abraham's tithe, the Levitical priests are paying tithes to Melchizedek. Does that make sense? We kind of see how that hierarchy is setting up. And he's saying, you give tithes to people that you see are as superiors to you, people that are of higher authority than you do. And that, and that you are blessed by somebody who's... He's saying, if I'm going to give something to somebody as an act of goodwill, as an act of grace, I'm giving something to someone that they did not have or something that they could not attain. I'm giving it to them. And in a sense, that's kind of saying, like, I am doing something for you that you could not do for yourself. So the fact that Melchizedek is said to have blessed Abraham... And Abraham accepted that blessing from him. He's saying, you are able to bless me in a way that I could not bless myself. Right? I I have to submit to your authority to give me this blessing. I can't, this is something that I could not have accepted on my own. Something I could have made for myself. You are blessing me. You're giving me this thing. Uh, That sounds a lot like what we would call grace. Right? I'm giving you something that you could not attain on your own giving you something you could not earn. I'm giving you something that only I could provide. So when it says here in verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. The author in Hebrews is making a really huge point. He's describing Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, you know, the apex guy. The guy that they all look back to and say he was the one. He's saying, this guy was played second fiddle to Melchizedek. He submitted to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a greater authority than was Abraham. And you need to realize that that has major implications for the way that you're living your life. Because Melchizedek, like we've already said, is like Jesus. He is an example of Jesus. So Abraham is submitting to someone who is like Jesus. There's something higher. There is a greater authority than your Levitical priesthood. There is a greater authority, and that that is Jesus. And he's going to continue to build on this case over the next um, couple of weeks as to what the, the real implications are for Israel and for the people who are reading this letter. And when you think about Melchizedek, I want us to go back. And I want us to look at his name again. Because if we're going to say he's like Jesus, then let's try to pull as much out of this as we can. It says, for this Melchizedek, this is verse 1, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings, and he blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Okay, this is the sentence I want us to focus on. He is first, by translation of his name, 
king of righteousness. So Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So these are two points that I think are really important for us to realize. Because if this guy is supposed to represent Jesus to us, what does it mean that we have a king of righteousness and that we have a king of peace? What does it mean? I'm thinking it means that Jesus is our only hope of attaining righteousness and that Jesus is our only hope of ever finding peace. And that, and I think you could easily look around your own life or the life of the people in this room or the life that everyone is going through in Johnson City or keep getting bigger and you'll see peace is an unattainable thing when we try to attain it on our own. And we've been promised peace isn't going to come to this earth because this earth is broken. And until the end, when Jesus returns and he reigns as our king, we will not find peace. Perfectly. We may be given glimpses of what that will look like, right? We may be given little, little pictures or, or moments in our life where we're like, this is like the peace that Jesus is bringing to us. But we're quickly reminded, quickly reminded that that peace is not something that we're going to ever attain perfectly in this life. In this, in this state of a broken world that is being destroyed by sin. And, and it's not until we are able to recognize the superiority of Jesus and submit to him that we're ever going to have a hope for ever truly attaining peace. And at the same time, it's not until we submit to the superiority of Jesus that we're ever going to have the hope of ever attaining righteousness. We're just going to be stuck. We're going to be trapped. Just like we talked about before. We're just going to be trapped in our sin. We're just going to be trapped in our wickedness. We're going to be trapped in the turmoil of whatever is going on in our lives without hope of getting out, without hope of ever attaining holiness. And it's not until Jesus puts his holiness on us. It's not until he blesses us, he gives us grace, and he gives us righteousness that we can ever become righteous. We're just going to keep running around in circles, doing the same things over and over and over again. Trapped. Right? Just like we talked about at the very beginning. Caught in a situation that we can't get out of on our own. But for the grace of God. But for the love of Jesus. But for the desire that Jesus has to take us out of that situation. To take us out of our sinful ways and put us into his own righteousness. Because we don't have our own righteousness. The only righteousness that we have comes from our King. So, so any time that we find ourselves thinking, oh man, I'm getting this. Oh man, I am doing so. It's not because of anything that we're doing. It is not because of anything that we are bringing to the table. It's because Jesus has thought to give us his righteousness. To give us a glimpse of the peace that he is promising us. And, and our response to that should be fitting. What, what was Abraham's response when he was blessed by a superior authority? So Melchizedek comes up to him and he says, I have a blessing for you. And he gives him this blessing. And Abraham says, here, have this. Let me give you this back. This, this is 
This is just a tenth. This is just a small portion of what I've brought back. But let me give this to you as a showing of I'm submitting to you. I'm accepting your blessing. I, I, am, I am grateful for what you've done. And I want to give this back to you. Not that you need it. Because he's been described as a king. I would venture to guess that this guy does not need whatever it is that Abraham gives to him. But Abraham gives it to him as a sign of, I'm submitting to your authority, I'm giving this back to you, I have been blessed by you, and I want to, in a sense, bless you back. This is the natural thing for me to do. It is natural, it is, it is right that you would bless me and that in response, I would give something back to you. And that's exactly what, what I think we're, the whole point of when we do response time, that's the whole point. It's, it's a greater authority than us, someone who is higher than us, someone who is more important, someone who is better than we could ever be, has blessed us, right? He has given us something that we did not deserve and could not obtain for ourselves. And he's given us the promise of eternal peace with him. We get to get out of this situation. He's getting us out of our sinful, broken world. And He's going to put us in a place where He pours His righteousness on us and we get to live in perfect peace with Him. He is blessing us with that. He is giving us that. So it's only natural that we would respond to Him in a fitting way. In a way that, that would, in a sense, bless Him back. In the way that He wants us to respond. I think because He keeps saying, Abraham gave him a tenth. Abraham gave him... Abraham gave him something. He, he, sat, he was sacrificial and he gave something back to him. I think that, more than anything else, is the reason why I think tithing and stuff is so important. Not because I want you to do this, this follow this rule, check this box, make sure it's exactly a tenth of everything, and give that. But because it should make sense to us. It should feel right that, man, God has given me all of this, I should give him something back. Right? And we're given an even higher calling for what, for what actual sacrifice to him should look like. Because, I mean, if you think Romans 12, your body is a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. Give him everything about you. Yeah, give him, some of your, give him your possessions, give him your stuff, but give him your life too. Give him your time, give him your thoughts, give him, give him your free time. You know, give him your attention, give him your focus. That's the natural response to the blessing that God has given us. Right? He gives us grace, we respond in kind. And that's where I want us to be, at least for this week. I want us to think about the fact that Jesus has taken us out of our sinful lives and he has given us his righteousness, he's given us a promise of peace what should our natural response to that be? If you are saved, what should your natural, and I say natural, not forced, not because I prescribed it to you so you did it. What, what has Jesus put in your heart to do for him? What is it that you need to give to him? Is it, is it, is it, is it more of your money? Is it more of your time? Is it more of your attention? What is it in your life that you are still holding on to that you don't want to give him? What, what is it that you're feeling like the natural response for what Jesus has given me is that I would give up 
insert sacrificial thing here. So I'm going to pray in just a sec. And while I'm praying, if there is a thing that is in your mind, that is in your heart, what is that thing that you see? It just feels normal that I would give this up. What is that normal thing that, that you should just naturally want to just hand over to Jesus because, man, he's already blessed me. It, seemed, it makes sense that I would give him something back. And then, if you don't know Jesus, um, everybody else is also going to be praying that Jesus would take you out of your sinful life and he would give you his righteousness and he would give you his promise of peace and that he would give you a heart that would want to give back to him. That's what we're all going to be praying for if you don't know Jesus. Um, if you feel like he is doing something like that in your heart, talk to one of us. Talk to me. Talk to dad. Talk to, talk to anybody in here and just say, I'm feeling like this is what Jesus is trying to do in my heart. Help me. And we will help. Um, I just want for our church to live in a way that the, our lives reflect what seems normal. A normal response to somebody sacrificing their life to save us from a certain situation. Right? What would you do if somebody gave up their life to save you from death? What is the normal response when someone does that for you? Because that's what Jesus did. Is it normal that someone would save us from that and we would do absolutely nothing with our lives afterwards? That's not normal. That's not normal. So let's pray that we would have a, a natural response to what the gospel means in our lives. Cool? Let's pray. Jesus, I just want to thank you for grace. I want to thank you for what grace means for me, for my family, and for this church. And I just want to pray that your grace would wash over everybody in this room. Everybody. And that you would open everyone's eyes to see how good you are and how gracious you are and what the gospel means in our own lives. And then God, I pray that you would give us a heart that is just naturally inclined to live sacrificially for you. To give up everything, if that's what we're called to, to follow you, to serve you. God, I just pray that there are some of us here who you haven't revealed yourself to yet that you would do that right now. That, that we could all stand together just a second and sing and sing these words that you've prescribed for us to sing to you. You've given us the words to describe you. And I pray that we would all understand 
the implications of what it, those words are meaning. God, I pray that you would give us lives that reflect what it is that you've done for us. And that we would live in such a way that it would stand out. That we are living our lives for you and not for ourselves. God, I pray that you would just grow your church through what you do here with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so this is that response thing where we're going to do what comes naturally as believers and followers of Jesus. So we're going to sing, we're going to give, hey, the bucket's over here now because we have two bars in our church now. So it's over there. And we're going to take communion and we're going to sing some more. We're going to sing some more. We're going to sing loud. Because loud's good. Right? We're play loud stuff. So. Yes. yes, yes, good. Loud's good. It's all quiet stuff the rest of the way. Sorry. No. Cool. All right. Don't do nothing. Respond in some way. Let's, let's, let's do it.